Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. My co-host, Alan McGirt, is taking the day off. And it's now officially summer. I'm starting to make some summer travel plans. I'm going to go to the beach in July. I'm going to go visit my daughters in Louisiana and Colorado. I'm slated to run the Hood to Coast Relay Race in Oregon in August. So I'm going to start building back my frequent flyer miles. But our our guest today is somebody who wants me to do more of it. He is the CEO of Hilton, Chris Nacetta a job he's held since 2007. The past year has obviously been a very tough one for the hospitality industry, Hilton included, but polls show now that people are excited to get back. So we're going to talk to him about that. We're also going to talk to him about how he manages to keep Hilton so high up on Fortune's best companies to work for list. It was number one in both 2019 and 2020. It fell to number three this year, but it's still the highest rated non-tech company. So this isn't about the nap pods and the free gourmet food that you find out in Silicon Valley. This is really about culture and culture is at the core of our conversations here on Leadership Next. So Chris, thank you for joining us. Alan, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. It has been a difficult year, as you would guess, in our industry, but definitely see the light at the end of the tunnel and happy to be here and talk about what's going on in the business and uh, more importantly, and and much nearer and dearer to my heart, any goings on day to day is the culture of the company. So very happy to talk about that. Yeah, let's start with the culture because... You know, listeners may not know this, but our 100 best companies to work for list, which we've been doing more than 20 years at Fortune, is a pretty rigorous process. It's run by the Great Place to Work Institute. It involves employee surveys that dig pretty deep in your your company. So it's no small thing for you to vault to the top of that list. Can you Talk about how you do it. Yeah, well, listen, uh, by the way, I'm going to make one modest correction, which I fear doing since you set all the rules at your podcast and you run Fortune. But not only were we the number one non-tech company, but we were also this year the number one large company. That's right. Yeah, um, because we have a very large uh, workforce as compared to a lot of folks in the survey. But you're right. It is a really rigorous process. But, you know, what I would say is it's very big picture and very granular all at the same time. I got here 2007, we were the product of a leverage buyout, Blackstone bought us, they brought me in as part of that. I had been running another large hospitality company and the belief Blackstone had, and I had as a competitor to Hilton was that, you know, we had all the pieces of a business that you needed to be successful. The the business just wasn't functioning in the ways that it needed to function and something was missing. You know, and my diagnosis, even outside the company, but certainly when I got inside the company, was that the company's culture that had been very purposeful from the very origins of the company when Conrad Hilton founded it 102 years ago, had sort of lost its way. And not just in the traditional sense of not having a good strategy and all those fun things, which we can talk about, but it really sort of lost its way from a cultural point of view. Some of that was just the atrophy that naturally occurs in a big company. Some of it was that the company, as you know it today, was put together through a series of dispositions and acquisitions. And when you put it all together, 
the company culture just got jumbled. I want to stop you there for a second because this is such an important point. I mean, probably everybody listening to this podcast has at some time in their life or career been in a bad culture. And they're very stubborn things, you know? It really becomes entrenched. It's not easy to pinpoint, oh, we have a bad culture because we do X or because of policy Y. I mean, how do you both diagnose and then tackle a cultural turnaround? Well, I mean, it's easy to diagnose. It's very hard to turn around and it took years and years and years of effort. So the diagnosis is first, you know, if you look at the core metrics of what would drive success, we were, and I think it's an easy way to diagnose it, we were sort of an average or below average in every core metric in terms of performance. And so that's a leading indicator. Something's wrong in the company. It could be that you have a bad strategy. It could be that you have a bad culture. Typically, it's both. And in our case, honestly, it was. But you can't have a great strategy without a great culture and fix the problem. So my, all of my background and all of my experience taught me that a long time ago, that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I didn't make that. I think Jim Collins said that. But <laughs> if I'm wrong, I, I, Jim, I'm sorry. And that was my, you know, what I, I figured out. We weren't performing. Blackstone knew that. That's why we bought it. We thought we could fix it. And I said to them, we'll be able to perform, but I have to completely transform the culture of the company. And so, you know, it took years and years, but I said it's big things and it's small things, but it always starts with big things. And that is a term that gets used, I would argue, too often and not authentically is purpose, right? I, I call it purpose washing. Everybody now has a purpose. They, it's like a marketing tagline. We're gonna all save the world. But reality is if it's not authentic, if your people don't believe it, if you can't bring it to life in day-to-day -day ways and actions and things that you accomplish and that you can celebrate that reinforce it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really work, right? It doesn't sort of drive the inspiration and the motivation of the masses of, of the company. And so for us, when I got here, I went back and studied the company, which I, you know, I've been a student of the business a long time, been doing this almost 40 years. And you realize that Hilton's founding 102 years ago was on a really noble premise. It was Conrad Hilton said, I want to make the world a better place. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to allow people to travel to far flung destinations. I'm going to give them safe places to stay so that they can enjoy other cultures, have exchanges with other cultures, ultimately have greater understanding that will lead to more peace in the world. That is literally how he founded the company. And so I said, gee, that's pretty noble. And so what I did, you know, on the real big side is I tapped into that. I said, unlike what I think some would tend to do is say this company's really messed up and we're gonna break from the past and we're gonna have a whole new future and new sheriff in town and forget all that. I said, in our case, we had a really noble premise on how we were founded. We have an unbelievable history. The DNA is there. What we need to do is reattach to it. And so I got people to think about the legacy and the history and the impact yeah. and the contributions we've made to so many tens of millions of lives in thousands of communities in a way that they could feel inspired that they were part of something bigger. So the big picture is as simple as saying, everybody wants to be part of something bigger than themselves. Everybody wants to feel like they're contributing in ways, even though their job may be a small part or something that you could argue is, is not meaningful. When you aggregate it with all the other parts and put it together, it's a magical outcome 
that is really doing yeah. incredible things. If we connect everybody, whatever their part is, big or small, to that impact that we're having, they show up and they're more inspired to come to work, to do a better job, and to deliver better experiences for our customers. So purpose is important, but you were also saying it's not just purpose. The small things matter too. It was thousands of small things from the very first day I got here and figuring out in the way we did it, we had never done this prior to my my arrival, was you know team member engagement surveys that are very extensive. We do it every year. We goes to all our team members everywhere in the world. We get typically 90% plus participation. And we're asking a lot of questions about what's good, bad, et cetera, and ultimately measuring engagement with the enterprise. So that helps us with is the purpose really working and trust it with the enterprise to understand, are we really taking care of our people? Are we treating them like the family we think we are? And what we found over all those years is, we did some things really, really well. We did some things not so well. And so over the last 14 years that I've been here, we have every single year been doing those surveys and doing the work with you guys in great place to work and then grinding through and making incremental investments all over the place in yeah. our benefit programs and our training and development programs, diversity and inclusion. There are literally thousands of things we've done, but that's been a very granular exercise. And then we go yeah. back the next year and we say, all right, how are we doing? And what else can we work on? I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, business leadership used to be about setting strategy in the C-suite and then giving orders to everybody down the line, telling them what they need to do to implement the strategy. But today, things are moving too fast for that kind of a top-down approach. How do you be an effective leader in that kind of rapidly changing environment. You hit the nail on the head, Alan. We've actually given a lot of thought recently to adjusting our own leadership frameworks in terms of the attributes that are necessary to serve as an effective enterprise leader. In this environment, the longstanding hierarchical pyramid with orders coming down from the top simply cannot effectively deal with the pace of change. Being a great leader in this environment requires a lot of listening, empowering one's people, setting the tone for a culture of innovation and strategic risk-taking, because at the end of the day, you can't be involved in every interaction with your customers, with your employees, with your regulators. You have to instill in your professionals a sense of values to drive the way in which they'll make those on-the-spot decisions on behalf of the organization. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. Hilton, as you said, was a pretty sleepy brand when you took over in 2007 with private equity backing. You had a successful IPO in 2013. The value of the company pretty much went up and up and up. And then, and then, March of last year, you hit the pandemic. And all of a sudden, the event you never could have imagined where basically your properties had to shut down. So, Given your purpose and given your focus on your employees, what happened 
when you were faced with the zero revenue option, when all your business was closed. Yeah, it, it's the first time in the 102 year history of the company that it's dealt with anything like this. And I think a lot of people could say that. And I would say, and I've talked about it, thought about it a lot. We're a very values-based company, you know, and we think of our teams everywhere, whether they're in the hotels, corporately, wherever they are in our ecosystem as part of the Hilton family. And so they're an you know, incredibly important stakeholder, but we have other stakeholders. Obviously, we have shareholders. We have an ownership community that builds all these hotels. We obviously have customers. You know, we serve in a typically year 200 million customers around the world. And then we view our communities, you know, in the thousands of communities that we serve in 120 plus countries around the world as stakeholders. And so you can't do much for any of them when you have no revenue. <laughs> you can't, but you can. OK, so as I preach to our team, I've been through lots of crises doing this 40 years and nothing quite like this. But in the moment, they were all pretty bad. And, what you know, when I say values, I mean it. So every we had to make some really tough decisions. I'm not my gosh, you know, in our industry, when you have zero revenues, you don't have a choice. You have to protect the core business or nobody has a job and you're not doing anybody any good. But what I would preach to our team is. There are ways that in each of those stakeholder groups, we can make a difference even when we're hobbled in this kind of environment. So, you know, my belief in life is steady hand on the wheel, right? What goes up, what goes down, goes back up. We had a bulletproof balance sheet going in. We knew we would financially be all right. So there were a bunch of things like, yes, we did have to impact a bunch of our team, but there's ways that we could do it to, to take better care of them. Yeah, well, give us an example of a tough decision you made that might not have been the best thing for the company's finances in the short term, but you decided was clearly the right thing for the company and the employees in the long term. When we were furloughing people, we were keeping all of their health benefits. When we were doing reductions in force, we were doing very generous severance packages beyond what necessarily by any legal or other standard we needed to do. And you could argue, well, if you have an existential threat to the business, you got to do what you got to do. But that wasn't our view. The other thing we did, um, which I would do all those things over again, is we set up with some of our most important partners that had businesses that were surging as a result of this. And you can think of a few names. We set up an amazing system to get our team members that were being impacted in front of those folks and thousands and thousands of our team we were able to place in other places that had significant needs. And so, yeah, I'm not going to say we didn't have tremendous impact on our team. We did. And there was no other way without risking the entire business and, and putting everybody at risk. But we did it as best we could. We were super fair and generous in terms of those that were impacted on severance, on health benefits, and as I said, on massive amount of effort on on placement services. Our owner community, same thing. I mean, it's a very difficult time for our owner community, and we've done a number of things. You know, I was and we were the tip of the spear with the federal government, both with the then White House and with leaders in Congress on things like the unemployment insurance, top-ups federally, the PPP program for our owner communities. So we were doing what we could do. We were also using you know, our access and influence as best we could to make sure that the lawmakers and the administration understood the issues and leaned in in the right ways. And I'm very proud that our contributions in that regard were incredibly helpful. And then yeah. in communities, you'd say, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of, honestly, is that 
you know, one Saturday morning in the middle of it, the beginning where it was about as bad as it, it could be, I was reading one, one of the papers I read in the morning, and it was talking about all the first line responders that were trying to get to New York and other places, you know, and had nowhere to sleep. They had to stay away from their families because they didn't want to expose them or they were driving up from Florida and other places and they, had, they were sleeping in their cars. So I said, this is insanity. I mean, we're hobbled. But one thing we do have is a lot of rooms and we shouldn't let that happen. I called my team that Saturday morning. I said, I have an idea. You're going to think I'm crazy, but I'm doing it. I want to give away a million rooms. They're like, what? I said, we need to be part of the solution, even though we are have dramatic impact on our business. We have ways that we can help. This is a global crisis. We need to lean in. My team's like, okay, <laughs> all right, boss, if that's what you want, we'll, you know, I think we'll try to make it happen. And I, so I made a call because there is a cost to that because we don't own yeah. these hotels. I called Steve Squarey, my good friend and our very important partner, American Express. I said, Steve, that same morning, I want to give away a million rims. You guys want to be part of it. And he said, within about 30 seconds, absolutely. Let's do it together. We'll split it with you. And so by that Monday, we had launched giving away of a million rooms to first line responders in communities all over the United States and all over the world. Yeah. And so, Alan, to your comment, you're hobbled. We had problems. But you, if you're a values-based company, if you really do believe in being truly purposeful, there are always ways that you can keep doing good things and ultimately do well at the same time. So inspiring. And your employees have clearly rewarded you for it. Your investors seem to be happy about it. I assume it's you're seeing your customers come back as well. I want to just take a minute and talk about CEO compensation, because I think it's an issue that muddies the water and confuses a lot of people. I mean, you did the right thing when your business disappeared. You took a dramatic cut in your base salary. I think it was something like zero. Yeah, you went to I zero. I went to zero. Okay, to zero. that's about as soon as, as the pandemic hit. I, yeah, I, I took I cut it to zero. That's about as far as you can go. But at the same yeah. time, your compensation really is not your salary. Your compensation nope. is in stock awards. And, you know, when the proxy statement came out earlier this year, it said you made more than $50 million last year. Yeah. Your folks say that's not quite right. And if you think about the restructuring of stock grants, it was more like $20 million. But either way, a lot of folks on the outside look at that and say, well, wait a minute. The company had no profits. All its employees are on furloughs. How do you explain that? Yeah, I would say, first of all, the headlines are misleading, as you sort of suggested. If you look at my compensation from a take-home pay point of view, it not only is a fraction of the number you see in the proxy, but it was reduced from the prior year, number one. And number two, the vast majority of it will or will not be earned based on future performance. Because as you pointed out, the vast majority of my compensation is in stock awards that have multi-year Investing and they are totally dependent on the performance or, or largely dependent on the performance of the company. So in reality, from March of last year, I made zero salary. We restructured some of our uh, restricted stock grants for prior years that will be earned on a future basis if we perform. And so I think obviously the proxy says what it says, uh, you know, and those are yeah. the SEC rules. But it is including tons of very complex machinations, including very large part of that are shares that got turned in that they will never be earned, right? It's just it's a lot of double counting. But Chris, 
I mean, because you have done so well leading the company, you look at the stock price today, you have to be well into the money on those options. Well, it's not the, those, the way our performance works, the shares work, it's not on the stock price. By the way, in the same time all those things happen, our shareholders made money last year. In other words, if you owned our shares, they were worth more at the end of the year than they were at the beginning of the year, and they're worth a lot more now. But it's not a stock basis. It's broken down into metrics that include how we deliver on free cash flow, how we deliver on our market share in our individual hotels, how we deliver on growth, how we deliver on EBITDA, directly related to the inputs of the metrics that are important to business. Yeah. And here's the thing, our shareholders, you know, if you spent the time to read our proxy really carefully, you will see that while we always do disclosures and follow the rules, the, the reality of it was that those grossly overstate what my compensation, our senior management team's compensation was. What it was really reflective of is a restructuring of a bunch of years grants because they would never have been earned and it would provide no incentive system for our senior management team for the next three years. And as a result, the senior management team and I gave back all of those shares that had been granted in the prior years. And the last thing I'd say is our shareholders, yeah. I think, would agree because we had a majority of our shareholders vote in favor of our say on pay. So in the end, our shareholders get it. Yeah, I understand. It's a complicated subject, and I know your shareholders are happy and they have reason to be happy. Let me change the topic here and talk about sustainability because you really put this at the core of Hilton. I've talked to you about this in the past. I know it's very important to you and very important to the company, but explain why. I mean, you're a hotel company. Why is saving the environment so high on your agenda? Well, I'm very much, as, as somebody running a big business, a believer that we should be focused on things that are at the convergence of what's good for society and good for the business. Our strategy is completely aligned on the environmental side with what's good for the business. Because one, when we think about all of what we're doing in the environmental side, a lot of which is being executed at the individual hotels for our owners, it's beneficial to them. Our reducing energy use, carbon output, use of water, waste output, you know, the core ingredients to being more friendly to the environment. Those are all things that are beneficial to the business. They help the environment in a big way, but they also provide for more efficient operations within the hotels. And so there's a real win-win opportunity in that regard. The other you know, bigger picture issue is that if we're not addressing these issues as an industry, then ultimately, and you can start to see it happening around the world, you could have legislative backlash that limits the opportunity for growth in the business. So yeah. in my mind, it is a personal passion, but it is completely aligned with what is really good for our business long term. You know, you've been in some of these conversations, but everything I'm hearing from CEOs like you suggests that 2021 is really going to be an inflection point for how business engages on the climate topic. More companies making commitments, making serious steps. I agree. I, you know, in the beginning of the crisis, I think people were concerned that this was going to set back efforts in this space. I think it's done the absolute opposite of that. I think there's more attention on this issue on broader ESG issues than there's ever been. Um, I happen to think that's a good thing. Let me end by getting you to take out your crystal ball and answer two questions for us. One is, you know, you talked about people are clearly traveling, but it's still mostly personal travel. When, if ever, is business travel going to 
get back to where it was in 2019? And then how will your hotels be different in the future because of the experience of the last year? I am not a big believer in new norms. You know, I think Bill Gates said this, that things change over the short term much less than you think and over the long term much more than you think. I subscribe to that theory. You know, business travel is already coming back. It's probably a little bit better than half the levels from a volume point of view uh, at this point, the using the U.S. market as a you know surrogate. My expectation is as you get kids back in school in the fall, which I think is important, you get offices open to whatever new normal that is, you will see a significant uptick in business travel. In fact, I would argue, talking to a lot of our customers, there's a huge amount of pent-up demand for business travel. And I think part of it is you'll see, you know, that get expressed in a big surge of business travel. But I think part of this is also as effective as it's been to use the various technologies that are out there like we're using right now. I think people realize to a very large degree, most CEOs I'm talking to, that we've gotten to the limits of it, that they realize that to really build culture, to really get the collaboration, the innovation, the in the moment thinking, building partnerships and the like, that it's just very hard to do in a digital format. And so my own belief is, you know, that business travel will take a couple, two to three years to get back to where it was simply because the economic harm that's been done in a lot of segments of the business community, but it will. What will be different? You know, I think there'll be an evolution. We were already working as an example on a lot of new technology that would assist us in delivering reliable, friendly experiences, whether that's digital room selection, digital check-in, digital key, digital checkout. You know, we were already heavily invested in, in all of those things. And so what I would say is, like a lot of other areas, that all of that's accelerated. Thankfully, we were ahead of the curve, so it feels pretty good. But I think you will see yeah. a speeding up of the already in progress digital revolution in our space. And I like that word because in our business, there always is going to be a physical element to it. Obviously, the physical building, we are in the business of hospitality. We always want our people to be curating the best experiences. But the digital part of it is taking the things that can be routinized and taking those, turning them into digital or things that can be done faster or easier or more reliably and digitizing those to free up people to curate the more personalized elements of the experience. And so you're just going to see all the digital stuff move at a much faster pace, lots of investment in the technology space to sort of connect all those dots. Well, Chris, uh, you've had an amazing year. Thank you for taking some time out of it to talk with us. We'll all look forward to the fidgetal future. I assume you spell that P-H-Y, right? Yes, Fidget- I do. The fidgetal future is here at Hilton. So if you don't have it, download your Hilton Honors app. And most of what I just described is available. Uh, already happening. Good. Uh, let me say I did take the time to look up while we were talking uh, who first said culture eats strategy for breakfast. Looks like it was Peter Drucker. Okay. Jim Collins may have said it as well, but I think Peter Drucker got there first. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to get, I'm sorry, Peter Drucker and Jim, uh, I'm taking it back. It was Peter <laughs> Drucker that said it. Thank you so much for spending the time. Congratulations on what you've been able to do. We appreciate you being part of Leadership Next. Thanks, Alan. Great to be with you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. 
written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 